0: in your scriptures to John 21, and you can follow along as I read our passage of study this morning, John 21, the first 14 verses. John 21, beginning verse 1. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, We will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him no. And he said to them cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find a catch. So they cast and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. And therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment on for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat For they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid, and fish placed on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of large fish, and 153 were counted. And although they were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Father, we pray that in this hour where we open up your word and we hear from your spirit, we hear from your written word, that our hearts and our lives may be touched in a way that we are transformed because we came under the authority of your voice to us as your people. We ask that that transformation would make us more like your son. We pray that that transformation will also give us a passion and a zeal to serve you with greater intensity, greater desire and greater love for our Savior. I pray that as we speak of these things, as we speak of the Savior, that perhaps some here today that yet do not know Christ will be drawn to him by your hand, Father, as your spirit opens up the heart, grants faith, and introduces the glory of Christ to that one. And it's our hope that we'll be challenged this morning in how we worship you, how we look at you, how we see you, what we understand of you and how we are prepared to serve you and to speak of you before this world. Minister to us, Father, by your Spirit, that we might faithfully minister to others the glory of Christ, the gospel of our Savior. And it's in his name we pray this. Amen. I think we're all familiar with the expression, a fish story, because a fish story implies that somebody's telling a story that maybe is slightly embellished or exaggerated. I don't do any fishing, so I don't know any fish stories, but one of somebody else's telling. And it was actually Van that shared this story with me about my daughter-in-law, Dory, who was over at, with her family at Lake Curlew, and she caught a very large fish. And they measured the fish because it was so big, and they cut up the fish, and they ate the fish. And they later found out that on Lake Curlew, they keep track of those things and record them, and the record fish, I think, gets a prize or something. No prize here, because it's just a fish story at this point that size was not recorded and apparently the size of the fish she caught was bigger than the one that was recorded at the uh, the lake so a little disappointment there but nonetheless it was a fish or it's a fish story now you can imagine what the disciples may have told their children about what happened here on the lake And it was a similar story to one that we're going to look at earlier in the ministry of Christ and the fellow partnership of the disciples with Jesus Christ. This is about a fish story, but it's about a fish story that is told by the Spirit of God and that was witnessed by the Apostle John and the other apostles. It's a true fish story. One of the points that we have made from our study of John's gospel is he's very selective about the miracles and the signs and wonders that Jesus performed, highlighting only those that John found a specific purpose for. The other gospel writers included details of many more uh, miracles than John did. John let us know in chapter 20 and verse 30 that Jesus did many other signs and wonders as was read to us just a moment ago. And this book is evidence of some of those miracles, the book of John. And John uses those largely to show us the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the true Son of God, and John makes a point out of those miracles. This is the case with our text this morning and the miracle of the fish story that he tells here, a miracle that Jesus performed also in the early years of his ministry. And we're going to turn back to Luke chapter 5 in just a moment and look at that other earlier fish story. But here in chapter 21 of John, it is considered by most faithful biblical scholars to be an epilogue or kind of an ending to John's gospel. This 21st chapter, they say, is somewhat different. It's written a little bit different. And if we look at the end of chapter 20, the last two verses... That appears to be the conclusion of John's gospel. And then John adds, chapter 21. Because there are different language details in chapter 21, and since John seems to have written a conclusion in those last two verses of the previous chapter, there are some that believe this particular chapter was not written by John and maybe wasn't even written at the time that this gospel was written. In addition, what chapter 21 does so very well is that it provides a very, comp- a very comprehensive or maybe a compact view of the instruction given to the apostles as a response to the cross and the resurrection. Now, I'm not one that believes that John did not write this chapter because it appears to me that it is very compatible with the rest of the gospel. John had access to the other three Gospels, and he knew their contents, and again he writes what the others did not about the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Further, chapter 21 connects the cross, the empty tomb, to the future church age. It truly tells the apostles, after the resurrection, after the cross and the resurrection, it tells the apostles, what now? Or perhaps it answers the question that the apostles have had. What now of the gospel? In the verse that we were going to study this morning, John tells his readers that this is the third post-resurrection appearance of Jesus Christ to his disciples. He then takes his readers up north to Galilee, where he records a very interesting fishing expedition that becomes a lesson for the church. How do we know that this fishing story in John 21 is a lesson for the church? Well, first, as already stated, John adds this miracle account involving the Lord's disciples as a suitable ending to his gospel. Following the cross, following the empty tomb, following the other two appearances of Christ to his disciples, following the revelation of believing faith to doubting Thomas and following the stated purpose at the end of chapter 20. The very next thing that John includes is meant then to build upon that truth. That's the fish story. Second, adding to this, the miracle of fish concluding the ministry years of Christ was done once before. And this is where I'd like you to go back to that once before in Luke chapter 5 at the early years of the ministry, the early moments of the ministry, I guess. Early on in the three-year ministry of Christ, a similar fish miracle had been accomplished by Christ. Look at Luke chapter 5 and follow along the first 11 verses of this chapter. Now, it happened that while the crowd was pressing around Jesus and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret which is the lake of the Sea of Galilee, I should say. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land, and he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. And when he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night, and caught nothing. But I will do as you say, and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boats for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, "Going away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Luke tells us that this miracle has been experienced before by the disciples that we see in John 21. But where Jesus told his men that they were no longer to be fishers of men, or fishers of fish, they were now to be fishers of men. And that's a key truth here to the next three years of ministry that the disciples would do with Jesus. He was showing them, this is what you will be doing. You're going to be fishing no longer for fish. You will be fishing for men. So this first miracle regarding fish in the early, story, or the early parts of the ministry is now supplementing or telling us what is happening in John 21 with a second miracle of fish. Jesus was changing their occupation from literally the fishing industry to now a spiritual evangelistic ministry. So that's the second reason we see this miracle of fish as a lesson for the church. There is a third reason. John follows this miracle by Jesus speaking to Peter, giving him instruction on the care and the provision that he and the others were to give to the Lord's flock. And you remember how that goes. Jesus says to Peter, Do you love me, Peter? And Peter says, Yes, of course I do. He said, Then tend my lambs. Shepherd my sheep. He repeats that three times. This is a clear reference to the ministry of the church age to come. It's a clear reference to what these apostles would, from this point forward, would be engaging in. First, there's a lesson on catching fish. Then there is this charge by Christ to care for those fish that he now calls his sheep his lambs or his flock. The connection this has with John's stated purpose in writing this gospel could not be more clear to us. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The gospel now being made complete in Christ, the apostles were now being sent out to fish for men and to care for those souls that will be drawn to faith in Christ. Here in chapter 21, John gives to us the longest and the most detailed account from any of the Gospels regarding the events that took place following the resurrection of the Lord. With this fishing expedition the necessity of what the Lord provides for ministry is highlighted for us. And in this discussion on shepherding that follows, the calling of the apostolic leadership of the church is communicated as an expression of love for Christ. If we love Christ, as Jesus said, you will care for my lambs, you will tend to my sheep. And therefore, the theme that we're going to be considering in this fish miracle today is that Jesus shows us that we cannot have an effective ministry apart from him. We cannot effectively minister apart from Christ. We begin with the intention of the disciples to catch some fish on their own. This is the way the chapter opens, by telling us that Jesus again appeared to his disciples as he had done twice before in chapter 20. But this time, Jesus appears to his disciples on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias, what we know as the Sea of Galilee. It was called the Sea of Tiberias in that day because the city of Tiberias, a Roman town, was built on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And remember that John wrote this gospel later on. And as that city of Tiberias became more an active and a vital city, that lake became known for that city. And because John is writing to Jew and Gentile alike with the intention of them believing that read and hear his testimony... He's writing then in a language that they would understand. They know the Sea of Tiberias. What is significant about this third appearance is that Jesus does so in his home territory. The previous two appearances, they happened in Jerusalem. Now we're back up north in Galilee. In Matthew 26, after Jesus ate the final Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room, Jesus spoke these words in verse 31 and 32 of Matthew 26. You will all fall away, Jesus said to his disciples. You'll all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, Jesus said, I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee. What is that telling the disciples? After the tomb is empty, meet me in Galilee. Then after Jesus rose from the grave, when the ladies had come early to the tomb on the first resurrection Sunday, on that third day, an angel appeared to them announcing that Jesus had risen. And the angel said to these ladies, go quickly, tell his disciples that Jesus was raised from the dead and behold, he, Jesus is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. What is that message going to tell the disciples? Go to Galilee and meet Jesus there. While somewhat shaken with fear, the ladies quickly made their way to the disciples. They deliver the message when Jesus met them along the way himself, and he greeted the ladies. And he repeats that same message, telling them, don't be afraid, but go take my word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they will see me. Again, what is that telling the disciples on the day of the empty tomb? Go to Galilee. Meet Jesus in Galilee. In Matthew 28 and verse 10 or verse 16, Jesus adds that the disciples did eventually travel to Galilee and they gathered at a mountain that Jesus designated that they were to meet at. So not only were the disciples go to Galilee... They were to meet Jesus at a certain mountain, a certain Galilean mountain. And the point I hope that we see from this passage is that Jesus told his disciples that after he was crucified, after he'd risen from the dead, they were all to gather back home territory in Galilee. When Jesus had written, the disciples were still in Jerusalem. When the tomb was empty, they were still there in the city, hiding out in fear. Both the angel of God and the Son of God himself had sent messages again through the ladies to the disciples to meet Jesus in Galilee, and yet they remain in Jerusalem. It's on the first resurrection day that Jesus had to seek out his own disciples and met probably in the upper room in the evening hours of that first resurrection day. Jesus had to go out and find them because they were not making their way to Galilee. So he seeks them out in Jerusalem. They didn't go immediately to Galilee, though, did they? Because eight days later, where are they still? In Jerusalem. And that's where Jesus again sought them out, probably again in the upper room, this time to prove himself to Thomas, who had doubted that Jesus was alive. Now that takes up the first eight days. If we look in Acts chapter 1, From resurrection day to the ascension of Christ, there was about 40 days. That means somewhere in those remaining 32 days, the disciples did make their way to Galilee. And John tells us that seven of the 11 remaining apostles had gathered together. Peter announced to them, he's going fishing. The other six agreed to go with him. Now, we're not told where the remaining four disciples were, but we assume they are also in Galilee, finally listening to the word of the Lord and, and meeting them together in Galilee. But the seven men that got into the boat went out and fished all night. And this was apparently the productive time for fishing. I've read that night was preferred because apparently the fish don't see the net or the ropes on the net that easily. I don't know what the fish... How, does, how do we know how fish see? But apparently we know this stuff. Again, I'm not a fisherman, so I don't have any clue what the fish see in the darkness of the night. But at this point, I find it interesting that a number of good biblical scholars, they they speculate on what Peter and the others were doing at this point. Because Jesus had instructed them to meet in Galilee at a specific mountain, it is assumed by some that Peter was now being disobedient to the Lord to return to the fishing business that earlier in Luke chapter 5 Jesus had dismissed them from. We know Peter to be a man that was given to impulsive decisions, and it may be that Peter had grown tired of waiting, so he decided to go back to the trade that he knew t- that he knew well. That's possible. But on the other hand, Peter may have been doing what the Apostle Paul did with his former career. Remember, Jesus changed his occupation as well. Paul was a tent maker, and Jesus gave him a new career as the Apostle to the Gentiles. But the Apostle Paul used that old career, that old skill, in supplementing his income, continuing the tent making industry. And it may well be that Peter and the others had used up what remained of their ministry funds And he had a family to provide for. We know that he had a wife and probably children. The other disciples likely as well. So they could here be earning a few sustaining dollars while they're waiting for Jesus in Galilee to help provide for their needs. I believe it is reasonable to imagine that they had to do a little bit of work just to eat food and to provide for the needs of their families until he and the others received further instruction from the Lord and again somewhere in that 32 remaining days they're waiting for Jesus and Jesus is making them wait of course I can only speculate here since I don't find anything in the text that either condemns or approves the actions of these men to be sure the apostles had finally gathered together in Galilee as Jesus had directed it took them a little while to catch on And Jesus was patient with them twice before, seeking them out in Jerusalem and pointing them towards Galilee. We do not know if they waited at the mountain for some time where Jesus did not show up right away, and it could be that the other four were keeping an eye on that mountain. Maybe they were taking turns watching for that mountain when Jesus would show up. It may be true that these seven apostles were acting in disobedience to the Lord to return to the fishing industry and not to be waiting on that designated mountain. But John's account does not tell us so. What we do see is that they would gathered in Galilee waiting for the Lord. And when Jesus does appear, it seems that Jesus has a divine purpose behind these men fishing. He has an intention here. Because Jesus orchestrated the opportunity for the scene had caused a dramatic miracle itself, it may have been his design to teach these men a lesson on fishing for men. Now, at this point, I want to take a little summary observation here. Verse 3 tells us that the disciples spent the night fishing, but they caught nothing. The picture this gives in contrast to the miracle is that by the disciples' efforts alone, their labors were going to bear no fruit. Unproductive. And what this picture shows to us is the kind of gospel instruments that the Lord has to deal with. Even with the individual attention that the disciples got, the personal hands-on instruction, and even witnessing firsthand the miracles of Christ... Without the Holy Spirit indwelling these men, they were unbelieving, they were confused, slow to respond in obedience to the Lord, and they were not fully united. Four of the disciples aren't even in this picture. Now, in all fairness, Jesus had told the twelve to wait for him in Galilee and to meet him at a designated mountain. And I think we can call them the twelve, because if we look at Acts chapter 1, Even Matthias, who would take the place of Judas, was with them. Within the remaining 32 days that Jesus has been on the earth, Jesus did come. But you know that they could not wait 24 hours a day for those 32 days, for a whole month, without food, without income or provisions. Yet they were in Galilee, and some of them were together waiting for the Lord. According to prophecy, when the good shepherd was struck, the sheep scattered. Peter denied the Lord. They all abandoned Jesus out of fear. But the resurrection began drawing them together again, slowly and reluctantly. But the resurrection was drawing them together. Here was a time that these apostles were learning to wait for the leadership and the care of their shepherd. Yesterday in our men's leadership study, the wrap-up session was an interview with John MacArthur who spoke about the character and the nature of sheep. And those of you that men back in that study remember this. Sheep are known to be dirty. They're confused creatures. They're not very bright. They need to be led to food and water. They don't know how to take care of themselves. They don't know how to guard themselves. They are very vulnerable and defenseless. They only survive. Sheep only survive because a shepherd is willing to care for them, provide for them, guard and protect them, and even lead them to food and drink. The first three verses of chapter 21 illustrated what we are apart from the Lord's care and provision. We are like these sheep. And without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we would be just like these disciples, Confused, slow to believe, scattered abroad, and needing somebody to give them direction and guidance. This is the picture of the disciples in Galilee waiting for the good shepherd to come and to guard and protect and guide and to bring nourishment to them. The picture here is that without the residence of the spirit within us, believer's heart being occupied by the Holy Spirit, there will be uncertainty, confusion, times of unbelief, and we will be powerless to do anything effective for Christ. The view of the apostles shows to us that because of the faith-building work of the Spirit of God, these men eventually gathered in Galilee to receive instruction from the Lord. But they were like sheep waiting for the Lord to come and show them the way of gospel living. They're not fully united together under the gospel, and they were directionless until the Lord would come to them. And the part that we need to see here is Jesus made them wait. They waited. Perhaps so that they would understand how much they needed his presence within them, which would come at Pentecost, perhaps to teach them the necessity of fully abiding in him. This pictures us as well. Apart from Christ we will be, if we do not enter into the ministry with this mindset, we will be like these disciples. We're going to labor on our own strength and our own wisdom, and we're going to come up with nothing. This is the picture that I believe John is giving to us and that the miracle of Christ is tending to show us. While they waited, were Peter and the other six disciples in disobedience returning to the fishing industry? Well, I'm not entirely sure that they were disobedient, but what should be obvious to us is that Jesus had divinely arranged this moment to school his disciples on fishing for men. And you can see where the application for the church is beginning to emerge. Returning to verse 4 down through verse 8, we see Jesus providing now what was needed the provision that was needed for their fishing venture. Now, to be sure, whether there was disobedience or not on the disciples' parts, Jesus had in mind a much greater lesson in preparing his men for what is needed, what is coming in the church age. This brings us to verses 4 through 8, where Jesus arrives on the scene and provides what was needed for their fishing expedition. It's also here that Jesus provides a vivid example of what is needed for the fishing of men in years to come. So he's not only showing them something about literal fish, there's a greater lesson here for the church age to come in the new calling that they were given three years prior, that they are no longer to be fishing for fish. Now they're to be fishing for men. Jesus uses this side venture of the disciples to illustrate what he'd clearly taught them before. It's here that I appreciate the words of James Montgomery Boyce. And we're going to bring those up on the screen for you if we can. But James Boyce writes on this text saying, Whatever else he was doing, Peter was in Galilee, and he was waiting, though obviously filling in the time by fishing. No, the point of this story is not disobedience. It is rather to teach us what happens when we try to accomplish spiritual things by our own strength and our own direction. There's more than just a miracle fish story here. There is a lesson that Jesus is telling his disciples in preparation for where their lives are about to take them by virtue of the gospel itself that Christ has just completed with the cross and the empty tomb. Now, in John 15, if you'll just turn a couple pages back in the Gospel of John, while in the upper room, Jesus taught this critical ministry principle in verse 5. John 15, verse 5. I am the vine, he said. You're the branches. He who abides in me, and I am him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do very little. Apart from me, you can make some progress, but not a whole lot. It doesn't say that, does it? Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. We don't like people telling us that kind of stuff. I can get some things done. I'm not that stupid. But yet we are stupid like sheep. We're stupid ignorant in spiritual things. And unless the Spirit of God comes and teaches us spiritual things, we will continue to be spiritually what? Stupid. That's the picture of the sheep. And in that state, Jesus said, you can do nothing, nothing apart from me. These fishermen worked hard all night long. They were highly experienced fishermen. They knew their trade. And they caught not one fish all night long. I would say that's a miracle by itself. And I would say Jesus caused that to happen. Not one single fish in a net all night long. No, that's part of the miracle right there. Jesus stripped that ability from them. He told the fish, stay away until I tell you it's the right time. We observe from this passage what Jesus does not say in John 15. He does not say we can do a little bit apart from him. Or we might find only measured success. Rather, if Jesus is not actively involved in our ministry... We will end up like Peter and his companions here. They had the skill. They had the knowledge, the boat, and even each other. They had a net. All the equipment was there. And the fish were in the water. They were in that lake. But Jesus was not yet there to authorize and direct their work, and therefore their net came completely empty. Jesus tell, or John tells us that they'd been fishing all night, and when dawn was approaching... They still had no fish to show for their efforts. And then Jesus just appears on the beach. And it seems that the disciples notice Jesus. They see him on the beach because it says they didn't recognize him for who he is. Now that's interesting by itself because on two other occasions they had seen the resurrected and glorified Christ. And it's understood that Jesus had a different appearance now. But they'd seen that appearance on two other occasions, yet here they don't recognize him. Well, that could be partially attributed to the fact that they're about 300 feet away from the shore, and it's early light, so probably visibility was limited. But they did not recognize Christ. Nonetheless, Jesus calls out to a man, and notice the question. Children, you don't have any fish, do you? Jesus already knew. How did Jesus know they had no fish? Was it because he could see the empty net? I would say it's because he told the fish, don't jump in that net. He knew they weren't going to be there. The question was worded in such a way that Jesus already knew the answer, and so the disciples said, no, not a single fish. Jesus then instructs them, throw the net on the other side of the boat, on the right side. Now, apparently, Jesus had just watched them pulling the net up on the left side. So the point here is not that there's something magical about the right side. It's just the other side of the boat. Now, I'm no fisherman here. I know nothing about fish. I bait, hooks, nothing. But this much I can figure out all on my own. The fish could care less which side of the boat the net is hanging from. Because in the water is where the net is, where they are. So what side of the boat it's hanging from isn't the point. The point is Jesus told them, stay away from those fishermen's net until the appointed time. I'm fairly certain that the fish understood this, ignorant creatures that they are. It makes no difference to them what side of the boat the net is hanging from. And there can be no doubt that these skilled fishermen, they know this as well. But they do what the stranger on the beach had instructed. And the disciples throw the net on the right side of the boat. And they pull it back in full of fish. They had to drag the net in the water as they rowed just to get that quantity of fish back to shore. This is similar to the miracle of Luke 5. But there is a difference. If you go back to Luke chapter 5, remember the nets were tearing They had to call in their other companions with another boat trying to get the fish on, and both boats were sinking. Here in John 21, we read that the net is not torn, the boat is not sinking, and they're all able to bring those fish back to the shore, all 153 of them, and large fish apparently. Obviously, somebody took the time to count the fish. What Jesus was demonstrating by this miracle and in preparation for sending his men out to catch fish of another kind is that on their own efforts, without Christ involved, they can do nothing. But when they abide in Christ and Christ abides in them, they will bear much fruit. And in this case, abiding in Christ meant doing fish catching the way the Lord had told them. It meant obedience to the word of Christ. They caught fish when they did what the Lord asked them to do. Before Jesus showed up, they'd worked all night, had nothing to show for their efforts. Then Jesus gets involved. He tells them how to fish and they bear much fruit. I think we see the obvious lesson here because at that point, John said, this is the Lord. I knew who this is. And Peter immediately understood what he was saying. And Peter's the one that puts on his outer garment, and jumps into the sea, we presume, to swim towards Jesus. Now that's an interesting detail in itself, because if we jump in the water, usually we peel our clothes off, but their clothes were already peeled off in fishing. So he puts on his outer garment, jumps in the water, I assume because when he gets to the beach, he doesn't want to be inappropriately dressed. I I just picture the men out in the boat in a diaper, I guess, but that's, that's just my view. He comes to shore, he's dripping wet with his outer garment on, and that's so like Peter, impulsive. The reactionary disciple always, throwing on his outer garment, jumping into the sea, and swimming to Jesus. Now they're only 300 feet from the shore, but when they arrive, Jesus has breakfast cooking. And here again, I'd like to make a summary observation that I believe we applied to us. In this second scene, first scene, disciples fishing on their own. Second scene, Jesus enters the picture and he tells them how to fish. Where Jesus comes to these tired out men who had been fishing all night with nothing to show for their efforts, we see illustrated what is in store for the church in ministering the gospel. First, I want us to observe that ministry work, the gospel ministry, will be hard work. That isn't overtly pictured here. But we do see the hard work and the hands that are laboring here, and we see what happens in the New Testament gospel. The church is a church of men and women that are working hard, laboring for the gospel. And there's sacrifice, there's cost involved. Just because Jesus will empower his church for the work does not mean that he does not use the hands of believers or that they're not required. The apostles would soon learn that fishing for the souls of men would be demanding and it would be sacrificial. There is one lesson in this story that shows hard work where the Lord's not present. And they worked all night long and they came up empty handed. But there's another lesson in the story where Jesus is present. He causes the harvest and the disciples still need to handle these fish. They still got to drag it to shore and count the fish, take it to market, divide up the spoils between the seven so they can at least get some money from their labors. Ministry will require the work of our hands and oftentimes it will be hard work that demands much sacrifice. But second... The Lord is the one that must cause the success. There is work required of our hands, number one. But number two, the Lord is the one that must cause the success. Look again at the words that were read to us by Pastor Tim earlier in the service. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6 and 7, Paul is saying, I planted, Apollos came along and watered. They're working for the gospel, but God is causing the growth so then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. In other words, is the Spirit of God telling Paul that we're of nothing, no value to God at all? I, Paul, Apollos, we're nothing. No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying we can accomplish nothing. It's God that causes the growth. This is what Jesus meant when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing the fishing expedition in john 21 illustrates to us the apostles what they understood so vividly it should teach us our dependence on the lord in serving his kingdom but how do we do that if we want to serve the lord it's got to be more than just mechanics right we want some success we want a, a, a fish full of or a net full of fish we want something to come out of the work of our hands. How do we do that? How do we depend on Christ? How do we find our work fruitful? Jesus said that when we abide in him and he abides in us, we will bear much fruit. There is a principle here that we must see as servants of Christ. Obedience is essential. Obedience is essential. We must do what he's asked us to do And we have to do it in the way that he's asked us. It's like the example of the miracle of fish. Throw the net on the other side of the boat and you'll find a harvest. What did the disciples do? They obeyed. They were experienced fishermen. They knew this made no sense to them at all. But they heard the voice of the master And they responded in obedience. The picture should be clear to us. Obedience is essential. We're not only to do what Christ has called us to do, but we must do it in the way that he's told us to do it. And this means that our attitudes have to be engaged. The fruit of the Spirit has to be present. Galatians 5. We have to do what we do out of love. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if we don't do it out of love, we're just noisy people, accomplishing nothing. We not only need to do what Christ has asked us to do, we have to do it in the way that he's directed. We've not been asked as a church to be creative or inventive, simply to abide in Christ and for his words to abide in us. The fishing story in John 21 illustrates the necessity of the church doing gospel ministry as our Lord and our Master has directed. On our own, we're never going to produce a harvest. We're only fruitful as He comes to us and we abide in Him, faithful and obedient to His word. And this brings us to a third part, a third movement in this story. Again, fish are involved. But here we see the master, Jesus, providing nutrition to his servants through this fishing expedition. If this miracle was intended to be a lesson on gospel fishing for the apostles and for the church to follow, and I believe that it is, then certainly what took place when they gathered together on the beach after that big harvest of fish also has application and meaning. As the seven disciples arrive on the beach... Jesus already has a charcoal fire going with a fish on it, and there's bread there to eat. And the indication from this story is this fire just happened. Notice it's a coal fire. You can't really cook fish on just an open flame, otherwise you'll scald it. We all know this from barbecuing, right? It's like cooking marshmallows. You need some heat from coals, otherwise you'll just light the marshmallow on fire. This fire already has a coal base to it. It's ready for cooking. So the implication from the picture is that Jesus has just caused this cooking event to happen, most likely another miracle. But even more important is what Jesus does for his men, whether by miracle or personal preparation, he feeds his men. He feeds his men. John writes in verse 9 that there's a coal-based fire cooking. There's one fish. It's written in the singular. There's also bread on hand. Jesus asked the disciples to bring some of their catch, no doubt to add to the fire alongside the one fish, some more so you can feed this small company of now eight people. So not only has Christ provided something, but Jesus is going to make use of what the disciples have just harvested by his enabling power. Peter then wades out into the water where the boat is anchored and begins to drag into that full net of fish. He draws the net to shore and we assume he brings a few of the fish over to the fire and prepares them for cooking. But there's also a counting that takes place here. Somebody's got to take the time or a couple of them to count the fish and again probably to divide up the spoils so when they take them to market they know how much they each are going to get. Jesus then calls his men to come and have breakfast. He adds that he knew that Jesus did not have to be asked if it was him. They knew it was him. They didn't need to question Jesus. Jesus then distributes the meal of bread, the roasted fish to his men. And John adds now this is the third appearance that Jesus made to his disciples since he was raised from the dead. Now we know about other appearances, the Emmaus travelers, the ladies at the tomb. But here John wants his readers to know this is the third appearance that Jesus makes to his apostles. He's preparing them for ministry. He's preparing them for what is to come. And both this miracle fish story and the shepherding words that will follow that we'll look at in our next time, our next study of John, direct the apostles for what is to come in the gospel age of the church. So therefore, in verses 9 to 14, we see Jesus providing for and caring for his chosen men. He's demonstrated the necessity of his power and his involvement in the ministry of the work. But Jesus was also showing his men, I'm going to care for you. I'm going to provide for you. I will meet your needs in the doing of my work. So I'm going to make a third observation here that applies to us as believers. The third part of this fishing story of John 21 illustrates the blessing and the provision that comes to us from the Lord When he is present and actively involved in the work of the ministry, a meal such as this provided by the Savior was one way of showing his scattered, once scattered disciples, I'm now restoring you. You guys took off, you hid, you denied me. This is a restoration meal. Jesus did not come to chastise them for not being at the designated mountain. He didn't scold Peter and the others for returning to the fishing trade, if in fact that's what they were doing. I think I think they were just supplementing their income. Myself, but if Peter was being disobedient in returning to fishing, it would be hard to see why the Lord would reward his efforts with this large catch of fish. But Jesus could see how tired and hungry his men were. They would have been discouraged at the break of dawn to have worked so hard all night long, coming up empty-handed, and then Jesus appeared, provides a healthy catch with one cast of the net. He adds blessing to this by fixing them breakfast. I say fishing nutrition here because I believe that Jesus is providing not only a spiritual nutrition, but a physical one as well. The physical is obvious. They're hungry, they're tired. Jesus supplies that need. But this was a restoration meal, a fellowship meal. He was telling his men, we're okay. I'm restoring you. I'm putting you into ministry despite your disbelief, despite your cowardice, despite your running and hiding, despite the fact that I had to coax you to go up into Galilee. This is a meal that restores his men and prepares them for ministry. There is spiritual nutrition here. There is physical nutrition. The fellowship meal that Jesus provides for these men would have restored them to ministry as well as rejuvenating them physically. This is not at all unlike what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4. And remember, as Paul wrote that letter to the church in Philippi, he was in Rome, chained to a praetorian guard, and waiting to hear if Caesar would execute him. And he writes at the end of this Philippian letter, Philippians 4.19, these words. He said, My God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. My God will supply all your need. He's writing to impoverished believers in Macedonia. The Philippians were poor people. And as Paul writes those words, he's not telling them, God's going to make you rich and prosperous. But he is telling them, God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth a similar message. In verses 6 to 8 of 2 Corinthians 9, Paul said, Now this I say, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. In other words, God will take care of us. God will supply what is needed. It doesn't mean that we're going to be without trouble. It doesn't mean we're not going to be emotionally disturbed at times or lacking in resources or short on money. It doesn't mean that God is going to give us everything we want. But it does tell us that God knows what we need, and he will give us adequately. He'll take care of his people. The good shepherd knows how to care for his flock, spiritually and physically. What this miraculous fish story teaches us is not only does the Lord God provide the successful harvest, empowering the ministry so it produces something, as we serve him in obedience to his word, but it reveals his kindness, his compassion, to provide us what is needed in this life at the time of our need. I would suppose that very often we don't stop to inventory these blessings or to actually take note every day, time and again, how God cares for our needs, both spiritually and physically. But maybe we ought to. Maybe the end of our day should be a time when we do inventory just how kind and gracious our good shepherd is, how he's provided for our needs. And again, it does not mean that we're not going to face trouble in this life. In fact, as we enter into ministry, that's where you begin to know trouble at times because sheep can be difficult. But both the physical nutrition as well as the spiritual, they're provided by our Savior. When we abide in Christ, Walking in obedience to him and in fellowship with Christ, he causes our service for him to be productive and he provides for our needs. He knows how to take care of his sheep. As his flock this morning, let's close our time in prayer. Father, we do want to take these moments to thank you for being a shepherd that cares for our souls, that cares for our physical needs, that empowers our ministry efforts. Too many times, perhaps, we've attempted to serve on our own power by our own wisdom, and we've ignored the instruction of our good shepherd. And maybe too many times we've come up empty handed. As we look at this amazing story, the epilogue to John's gospel, I pray, Father, that you would inspire us as your church, as believers, to faithfully abide in Christ our Savior being attentive to his word. Help us to serve you in the way that you've told us, with the right attitude, with that presence of love. And if we're lacking something, let us in humility and faith cry out to you, Lord, give me love. Give me grace. Give me kindness. Give me tenderness or mercy toward those in need. We give you thanks, Father, for providing for our needs, spiritually and physically. Help us to be more attentive to the many, many blessings, the wave of grace after grace that overflows our lives, that we respond in adoration and thankfulness and worship to you. Thank you for owning us as your sheep. Thank you for being the good shepherd that always provides and cares for us. Thank you for a shepherd that laid down his life, that we might be forgiven of our sins before a holy God and restored in fellowship, not only for this moment, but restored in fellowship for all eternity. And we give thanks in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.